Hi, everybody, and welcome to episode five of Conversations of the Code 9 Foundation. Now, as someone who's been working in the field of emergency management and disaster response for, well, probably the better part of two decades, I've really been looking forward to this particular episode as we are joined by Victoria's Emergency Management Commissioner, Andrew Crisp. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us in this episode. Great to be with you, Erin. I look forward to the, the chat. Now, for those of you who um, are listening and might not be familiar with the role of Emergency Management Commissioner, Andrew has the responsibility here in Victoria for the coordination before, during and after major emergencies, and that also includes the consequences of these emergencies. And during his career, which includes experience in really senior emergency management and policing leadership positions, Andrew's been involved in the response to, well, quite a number of major, major emergencies and incidents, and just some of them obviously this year alone, including the, the devastating bushfires that all of Australia um, witnessed, obviously the pandemic that's now happening now. But before that, if we think locally here in Melbourne, you know, the horrific Burke Street Mall incidents, and even I believe you've been involved with the Christchurch um, incidents that have happened previously as well, Andrew. So. You've got, I mean, some of our emergency service people that are listening will be involved in certain aspects of that response, but you, yeah. you've been involved in the big picture stuff, so that's got to have a big impact on you. So my very first question to you as we start out today is, how are you? Yeah, that's, that's a, you know, it's a very, very good question, and I guess this could be um, a very quick answer or a very long answer <laughs> because... Um, Look, it, it's been tough, you know, and I don't mind ad, ad, admitting that. And I've, I did a video uh, recently, I, I do a weekly uh, video that, that goes out across the sector, and, and it, was, it was on the back of the, you know, the, the tragic death of the four police members. And, and it was this piece about, you know, that, I guess that analogy about the, the bucket and have fools your bucket sort of thing. And, and you, you talked about the fires and then rolling into, into COVID. And I guess my bucket's um, been pretty full with coping with that. And then you've always got that, that tipping point. And I guess given my background with Victoria Police, um, those deaths were sort of my, a, a tipping point for me. There's, so the, the bucket did overflow a little bit. And I, I found it very difficult um, to cope for, for a couple of days. Um, so, so for me, it was about, you know, what do I do to cope in, in those situations? And I, we can talk about this later, but I was breaking my own rules about how I, I cope with situations like mm -hmm. that. So, but I guess to, not for too long an answer, but um, I, I've not been afraid ever to put up my hand and say, you know, I want to have a chat with someone. And, and I did um, after that. And I've had a, a follow-up conversation. I knew what I was going through was normal, but I still wanted to, to test that and have a chat with someone, and that, that was really useful. And I'm sort of – the bucket's okay now, but um, I guess it's still pretty full because, you know, we're still in COVID. And, and this isn't about me, but it's, you know, you know, I haven't had a break since July last year, and mm. it's, you know, it's been, it's been fairly intense. But, again, as I always say, I'm supported by a great team. I, you know, I work with wonderful people across this whole sector. So um, that's – that's where I am at the moment. Yeah, well, it's a great answer and it's an honest answer and I appreciate that. And I really like that analogy of the bucket because we, we often talk about that. And I know I talk about that with my students in disaster and emergency response and being so mindful of that kind of idea of, of how full is your bucket and that we can do things around self-care and building our inner resilience to try to bring the level of the bucket down and help us have a little bit of reserve in the tank. So 
I'm really uh, interested. You, you said there you broke your own rules. Um, what what are some of the rules that you have in place just in a general everyday Andrew world? Yeah. Um, what were some of those rules that you usually have in place for looking after yourself? So so one of, one of the key ones, and, and this was the role I, I broke um, after the death of the, the police members, um, was engaging with the media. Uh-huh. Um, I've learned over many years uh, not to get drawn into that because, you know, as we know with the, the cycle of an emergency, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's about the response, but then it moves into this piece about the human interest stories, um, which, you know, can, you know, it's only human to, to be impacted by those stories. And then it... To continue the cycle, it then goes into the who did we blame. So I'm very, you know, conscious of how that that works. And I guess if I go back as an example, um, at, with Burke Street, the first attack, I was the deputy with Vic Pollock at the time, and got sitting over the top of that that operation, and and, and I I complied with my rules. I, I didn't get engaged, sucked into the media, um, but I know that it was interesting for me because. Um, Malcolm Turnbull was the Prime Minister at the time and uh, he came down to visit and, and with Graham, we, we briefed him and we went down to, to the scene, we went down to Burke Street where all those flowers in the mall um, were, were placed and I, I was still doing okay and then I, I remember there was, a, um, there was a young child with a bunch of flowers walked up to put the flowers down and I just had to look away because mm. I, I knew that that was getting to me. So. To answer your question in relation to the police members, I guess because it was police again, I sort of got sucked into, I, I was engaging with the media and when I had the conversation um, with with the counsellor, uh, it was this, she said, well, you know, go back to your, your rules. And so I just, you know, I put a line under it there and you just sort of moved on. Not not saying I, I wasn't thinking about it, but not being further drawn into the, the media side of things. So when you say that, is that, uh, I mean, for you, that's obviously you have a, a key role in actually being front and centre in front of the media, but I guess for those that are listening as well, one thing we were certainly saying to people throughout the, the bushfires and, and the pandemic was to try to limit the amount of exposure that you have. Yeah. Um, and certainly, obviously, with the tragic deaths of the police officers, that hit a lot of our Code 9 family really hard as well. And so, yeah, trying to be mindful of how much time you spend on social media and what you read and how much you you take in because absolutely that's going to have an impact. And as you said, for you, you know, you haven't had a break since July last year, but even just for the everyday Joe in our community, I think from the start of this year, it's just been a constant onslaught. Yeah. With the bushfires, we're all over the media and then the pandemic's been all over the media. And so I think that's really useful advice is for all of us to be really mindful of how much... We, we look at the, the media and um, really limit our use if we can um, because that can have such a, a huge, big impact on us. So I'm really fascinated. That, that's, I, I, guess, I guess there was probably more I could answer around that because that, that's one part. The, the, the other thing for me is, is actually about, you know, and I know that we all know it, but it's, you know, that's, it's that healthy body, healthy mind piece for me. So it's, you know, exercise is a way that I also cope with stress. And I, you know, I find it difficult um, if I don't exercise, if I go a number of days without it. And you can imagine in this COVID environment, you know, I am a member of a gym in the city and I would I'd go very regularly. The gym's closed, you know, what do I do? So I've had to adapt my training. So uh, my one of my offices is at 121 Exhibition Street. I'm in my office at the State Control Centre at the moment. So in uh, at 121 Exhibition Street, um, I've taken to running up and down the stairs in the <laughs> stairwell. So just as my way of, you know, adapting my adapting. exercise. But, yeah. But, I, you know, 
I hate it, but I, I love it, you know, because it really, really hurts me. But it's interesting. That the, the, yeah, the, I always enjoy the solitude of being in a stairwell. It's, it's a really strange <laughs> feeling, but I know. Maybe I need a break. I'm sounding a bit strange. Yeah. But, um, but it is that, that, that exercise piece is really, really important um, for me. Yeah. And I think, too, and that's something that, you know, you've just mentioned to you, you're now running up and down in the stairwell because and that word adaptability, I think it's so important when particularly in the environment that you're working in, you have to be so ready just to adapt and change and move with whatever's happening. And I think that's what we've all learnt the hard way, I think, too, in the pandemic is that we've had to, you know, adapt yeah. to our new circumstances yeah. and that certainly had an impact on the mental health of a lot of people out there. So we really are reinforcing, you know, we say self-care and people sort of, you know, tune out. They're like, oh, I don't have time to go have a bath or have a massage. And you're like, no, no, yeah. self-care is so much more important than that. So when I throw that word at you, like what do you do for self-care? So you've mentioned the exercise, but what does self-care mean to you, Andrew? Uh, it's, it, it is the exercise. It, it's about just the, the little things, again, that I, I've learned o- over the years that really helped me. And, and family is definitely a really, really um, big part um, of that for me um, because – it is the self-care, but it's the family care at the same time. You know, I, I have a critical role in my family. I've got two um, adult daughters, um, you know, same wife I've had for, I can't remember how many years, but a oh. long time. <laughs> <laughs> well into the 30-plus years. So um, I remember the anniversary, 10th of December. But, well, uh, that's the important I thing. I forget the number of years. So, so, you know, it's that role as well. But, again, I... My wife is just over the years has just been so so supportive, you know, from from day dot, um, and and I don't generally take a lot of my work home, but I know if ever I want to have a conversation. So the self care part around that is, you know, you know, I just as soon as I drive in at home, I I don't know, I just I feel different. Um, you know, it's a really comfortable, safe place um, mm. for me. And then you know, our daughters don't live at home anymore, but. When we catch up, we do that quite regularly. You know, I'm just, you know, sounds a bit cliche, but more of a complete person. You know, yeah. I can just really, really relax. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's really important to me as yeah. well. Yeah, I was going to say, because one of the things that will always stick with me when I talk, and I talk, you know, we teach leadership to our students in your emergency management and disaster response courses. We always focus on leadership and how communication is so important. And one of the biggest things about being an effective communicator in a crisis is appearing or coming across as being honest and empathetic. And one thing that will always stand out for me now through the bushfire crisis was Shane Fitzsimmons. And when he was talking about, you know, how important, yes, his family was, and he got quite emotional on a particular TV yeah. interview talking about his wife. And I'm sitting here, you know, all you know, cheering up at home myself. And I love that you just said then that, you know, your family is still such an important part of your self-care. And I think because when you get home, at the end of the day, like we see you and you're in front of the cameras and usually it's always in the middle of an emergency. Um, so we associate you with that high-level stress. But at the end of the day, you go home and you take off your uniform and you're just a bloke like, you know, everybody else. Um, and to them, you're just the husband and maybe you forgot to yeah. pick up the milk on the way home. And, and to your daughters, yeah. you're just dad. And, um, yeah. you know, once that uniform comes off, does it somehow help you kind of shed some of that stress? Or is there a little bit of it always just constantly there on your shoulder? Oh, look, there's always something there, but but it does make a huge difference. 
And, and again, I, I, I sort of tend to, you know, we hear people about, you know, they need to take a month off because it takes them a week or two weeks to unwind. In all honesty, that, that's not me. Um, you know, if I'm going away on a holiday and once I start, I feel good. You know, I, I don't need that, that time, which sounds a bit strange, you know. My wife, I'm not sure she'd necessarily agree at times when I might be looking at my phone, but but I do. I feel I feel very relaxed. So um, yeah, I when I when I get home, um, yeah, and it's and it's the same, you know. Before you know, pre-COVID, and you know, I even do it now in terms of you know, I've got a favourite little cafe around the corner. I just you know, it's, it's routine is really important to me as well. Um, that I find that really helps. Um, so you know, I, I know. Because I spent six months in East Timor with the UN, and like it was a really difficult time just after you know, you know, with all the militia incidents and everything else. But what I know again, you know, what worked for me was getting getting into a routine. So I know that doesn't work for everyone, but you know, routine does help me. Yeah, no, it was funny. I was just about to when I was hearing you talk about that, I was about to say, do you have a routine? I'm certainly one of those routine driven people, and if I'm out of my routine, that sort of throws me a little bit as well. So. It's quite interesting, though, for somebody, you're saying, you, you know, routine helps, but then you, you are working in an environment where you um, are constantly dealing with, you know, chaos, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah. So I guess, you know, that routine, I guess, helps to balance out a lot of the, the stuff that you are dealing with. Um, so if you can reflect back on some of the bigger things that you have responded to and been involved with over your career, are there any that stand out for you that were particularly challenging when it came to your mental health and well-being? Oh, look, there, there, there are, and, and sometimes they're not the, the big emergencies, yeah. you know. Uh, obviously, with, you know, just, you know, 40 years in, in policing, you know, I, I saw a lot, I was involved in a lot in, in in that time, and I sort of I sort of get goosebumps thinking about this one now, and as in the early days, you know, I was a negotiator with, with um, Vic Pohl, and, um, you know, I, I got called out one night to, um, to a person that was threatening to commit suicide, and uh, he... He was sitting in a car. Um, I was I was in a police car, not not actually far behind. I'm not sure um, safety wise that we would actually sort of let that happen these days. And um, you know, every so often he would put this rifle under his chin and um, he go, "I'm going to count to ten. I'm going to shoot myself." And so I'd be doing what a good negotiator's trained to do and keep talking, work my way through that. But anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, I, I did that for a number of hours. He ended up he ended up shooting himself mm. um so um you, you know i i guess I, I sort of go back to that that was you know that certainly had a significant um impact on me but uh, you know a credit to victoria police with negotiators back in those days we always got called out with a psych and so you know a guy by the name of gary thompson was was with me on that particular job and, and you know sort of followed through on that but it was also interesting for me in terms of culture when i reflect on that and the way Victoria Police was then, as opposed to the way it is now. And I remember, um, firstly, I, I, you know, I sort of took the family car when um, when I went to this particular job, um, and um, and I, I got back, and I remember um, someone came back to the house with me, another police member, and um, and my wife opened the door, and she was a bit cranky. She goes, "I need the car. I'm going to take the kids to school." And she could see the look on my face and, and my colleague's face, mm. and she's you know she often talks about that herself, the, because they live it as well, and, yeah. and that that job also had a, a real impact on on my wife. But in terms of the organisation, the culture, um, I got called into the office of my chief superintendent 
when we had chief superintendents back in those days. And he sat down with me and I sort of thought he might ask how I was. And we might have got to that. But his first question was, um, was there something you could have said differently? And oh. I just, I was sort of like like this. And, yeah. you know, I won't mention his name, but he's someone I've got the absolutely the utmost respect for. And I've kept in contact um, after he retired. But, you know, that was just the way he was. It was about the job. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, and it really didn't get much to a conversation about welfare where Whereas I'd suggest that, you know, these days, very, very different. You know, well, I'd like to think, and I know that was my approach as a senior leader in VicPol, my first question would have been very much about how that how that person was going. But I guess even back then, you know, I had my own coping mechanisms and, and it was the exercise. So I still remember I had that conversation with Chief Super. I went for a run. Mm-hmm. But then as I've also said, you know, publicly before that I'm not perfect, so I'm um, I also had some ice cream. I like ice cream now, so, so you've got to have that treat as we well. All, so, we yeah. all have our vices, don't we? Yeah. Yeah, so that, that was a really, you know, that job for me sort of, yeah, it's it, it sort of, yeah, the cultural piece, the family piece, the personal impact, um, yeah, that was, you know, that was, that, was a big, that was a big job. There are two things in there that you, you, you touched on that I really want to flesh out a little bit more because I think they're so important, and that's the cultural issues and the impact on, on family. So you've been around the traps a long time now. So within that space, and obviously you've, you've mainly been within VicPol, but in your role as Emergency Management Commissioner, you've had more of a, a chance to see across the other services as well. I personally, in my two decades of just being around more in academia and teaching, I've even seen a change in culture um, within the services. Is that something that you've noticed as well when it comes to mental health and and well-being, that a cultural shift in the way that we actually recognise it and talk about it? Oh, def- definitely, you know, definitely. And, you know, it, it's it's been talked about now with Graham Ashton, you know, about to um, finish with Victoria Police in terms of his legacy. And, you know, there's many parts to that, but but one has definitely been this, this focus on mental health. And, you know, I think it was, what, 2017, I was sort of acting Chief Commissioner at the time when... Um, he said, I needed more time. And, you know, he made that very, very public that, you know, he was burning the candle at both ends and, and needed to take, take some more time off. Uh, so, yes, you know, where, where again, that it's demonstrated at that, that very senior level. I know now with, um, you know, the Fire and Emergency Services and, and Marty Smythe as the, you know, as the boss of ESTA, um, the regular conversations around health and well-being. What more can we do? The State Control Centre... We were over the fire season. We were looking at other ways that we could um, better support people because, you know, tragically, you know, three people associated with fire, forest fire management in Victoria died um, during during the fires. So, yeah, a significant shift. You know, have we still got some way to go? Yes, I'd suggest we would. Uh, and, and again, I think some of that's the generational piece as well. Mm-hmm. I know going back to the Burke Street attack, um, when I was walking around or you know popped into Melbourne East. Talking to the younger coppers, you know, there was a lot of emotion being shown. I, I talked to, you know, the sergeants, senior sergeants, the more experienced one, you know, how are you going? Uh, I'm okay, boss. Whereas, you know, I said, you can't be. Look at, look at what you've just been involved in, you know. It's okay to say, you know, I'm not travelling all that well at the moment. But it, there was a difference, which was good to see with the, the, the younger, more junior members. But I think there's, you know, there's, there's still some of that. The people who've been around for a while need to open up at times. I was really rapt to hear you just mention Marty Smythe at Esther. I actually started out my career 
many, many years ago as a triple O call taker for ambulance. And oh, wow. So know firsthand that those behind the scenes and, um, you know, they don't often get that same public recognition or even awareness of the impact that it has on them in that role. And I think we're moving a long way in the right direction with them as well. And we know, obviously, with those with the recent tragic deaths of the police officers here in Victoria, that had a huge impact on those people that took those initial calls coming through. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's, that's a really mm. that, that's a really really good point. And and I must admit, you know, I was in Vicpire for a long time. You know, it was LD twenty four and then Esther, and I sort of knew what they did. But I've got you know there was a, there was an example for me that where it really hit home. And, and it's actually been in the papers again in the last couple of weeks. There was a, a policewoman on a motorbike on her way to work um, going to Knox, and she got hit by a truck. And um, I, I went out to the police station the next day, and there was like a little care bear thing sent by um, people from Esther. And mm. and that really hit home to me about, yeah, I'd never – I'd sort of thought about it but never really thought about it. So I made a point of going into Esther and – you know, we had a morning tea and had a chat, and, and I've I've learned a lot more, or, or or I've got greater awareness. And so, yeah, I, I every so often, you know, I will pop in, and I've yeah, the, the call takers, you know, absolutely everyone at Esther does an absolutely amazing job. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, the family impact. So, and if if we get too personal here, you can just say, Erin, my wife won't want to talk about that. Let's move on. But. When you sign up at the you know the start of the career, um, you know basically you, your family signs up for it as well, don't they? And um, I'm just yep. interested. A lot of the a lot of the people that I speak to in this area will. I've done a lot of work with 9/11 first responders, and their family has been you know caught up in their mental health um, journey as well. So, what's the impact on the families? We and, and through Code Nine, we'll probably have some people listening through Code Nine. Now we do have a cohort of the partners and wives of the first responders who, who um, come to us for some support and to support each other. Um, so that impact on the family members who who are at home. So you've seen it with your wife and your daughters, and probably through mates and, and that sort of thing as well. Um, just being aware of you know what kind of impact does that have, particularly long term, like you've experienced. Um, as you said, your wife can probably just tell by the look on your face when you come home sometimes. Um, and is there a, a, you know, a way that you have of talking around that or how does she support you? But, yeah, what's the impact on, on your family from your job? Oh, look, it, it's massive and it always has been the same with anyone that works in these in sort of those frontline roles. And you know, sometimes I'm, I, I, I'm surprised my wife is, is still with me um, because – I'd suggest that, you know, I've been very, very selfish over the years in terms of, of my work, you know. Um, if there was ever anyone needed to volunteer to go away and do anything, then, then I, I've, I've done that. That's just that's just what I've done. So, you know, forever indebted to my wife just being so supportive, you know. I, you know, I, I, I moved back into what was called the Protective Security Group um, as, a, as a sergeant just – it was the week after Wall Street – so I was away doing um, witness protection an awful lot of the time, and and at that stage, you know, we had a you know a two year old and a and a baby, and and again that was quite stressful being away doing that that sort of work, and my, my wife was home and just looking after the kids. I'd be we'd be away for seven days at a time. Um, generally, you'd be back for a little while, but someone say, oh, you know, we we need a sergeant to go away another job, and I just go, yeah, I'll do it. Like I just, as I said, you know, I I, I was selfish. I guess so. Going to your 
your question because I, I've identified and reflected on that, that I, I know that um, I need to, you know, I need to better support my wife and, 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 and my daughters now. So, you know, my wife, again, is very supportive. You know, I, I work long hours and, you know, like a lot of people. And, and but I need, you know, I need a holiday. So, you know, I, I just, you know when I became a deputy with VicPol, I said to my wife, every year we'll go away, four weeks, block it out, um, you know, somewhere nice, you know, you deserve this as much as, as as I need it, or you need it as much as I need it. So let let's make sure we do that. So that that was sort of our, our plan, and and similarly move, moving in, into this particular role, we she will always ask if I want to talk. Sometimes I want to talk, and sometimes I, I won't want to talk. And so that's just great for me, knowing that you know Linda knows me that well that you know uh, when I don't want to talk then we'll move on and we'll talk about, about something else. But it's just the, you know, it's just the comfort, you know, it's just the, it's the family. It's hard to do, really describe it in words, but it's just, you know, it was that self-care piece before. It's just, you know, I can just relax, you know. Mm. I don't think, you know, I've ever gone home and been cranky or anything like that It's because I can just, you know, it just relaxes me and that's that's a credit to, to Linda and, and, and the girls. We certainly found through a lot of the research that I was doing with the 9-11 responders that the, the ones that probably didn't do as well with their mental health and well-being were the younger ones that were single, so not married, and didn't really have those social supports around them. And so obviously that shows that family is hugely important when it comes to protecting our mental health and well-being, but I guess we also just need to be aware of the burden that it can place on them as well. Um, so I'm just wondering, we're, we're coming towards the end of our podcast uh, 30 minutes flies by and I could talk to you for, for hours. I would have so many questions for you. Um, but maybe your final reflections on you know, where where do we go? So, you know, you, you've mentioned that there's been a huge cultural shift. We've done a huge job in improving, but, yes, there is a ways to go. For you, in your perspective, overviewing all of those services, um, where is it that we're going in, in terms of that mental health and well-being? Are there any priorities that you can see that we need to address? For me, I know that... It's definitely maybe including the family and the partners yeah, I, in in yeah. preparing them a little bit more for what they might yeah. need to see. But I'm really interested in your reflections as we as we wrap up around. Yeah, where do we go to from here in terms of mental health and well-being and protecting that for our um, emergency service responders? Yeah, I I think you know touching on that family piece is really important. Again, um, reflection is for me is that we've not done that well enough. I know when I was in VicPol and, you know, sadly we, we had a number of um, police and PSOs um, take their lives, um, and, you know, had a sort of pretty bad run over about 14 months. And I know, um, you know, one, one, of those, um, one of those tragedies was about um, getting the family in um, to, to, for them to better understand what the process was and how, how we could work with them. I think that if we want our families to be supportive of what we do, then we do need to we do need to, excuse me do need to involve them more in that. I know you know I had the opportunity to go to many many police graduations and you know always as part of the speech it's about thanking the families for for supporting the you know the people up to graduation. Then that's the that's expected then throughout their career. I think that's an area that we could do a whole lot more. How how can you work? work with with the families to give them the tools to help them to support the, the member of whichever organization so I think that's that's a critical piece and with the death of um, one of the forest fire management vehicle 
or one of the Bill Slade, the Parks guy, because uh, I sort of remembered about this particular situation involved in the family. So I suggested that to Parks to make sure they, they did that, bring the families and the workplace together. And I think that that was very, very well received. So I think that that's really, really important. Uh, you know, it's never going to be the one big thing in terms of, you know, the, the workers themselves. It's just going to be, you know, you touched on that word empathy. You know, it's about leaders and we're all leaders, you know, whether that's as, as a peer or as, as the boss, you've got to be genuine, you've got to be empathetic. There's no point asking the question, are you okay if you don't mean it? So, you know, you've, you've got to be got to be genuine. So so it's right from you know, the, the right attitude at the, at the, at the right time. Um, of course, we need to put in, you know, we need that, that professional support. You know, we need we need the psychs, the peer review, pro, you know, the peer support programs are critical. So there's lots of things. What more can we do around those? But I think, yeah, just thinking about it a bit more, we, we owe it to our families to do a whole lot more to support them. Um, and, and again, I guess going back to, to Graham and the fact that he's finishing up soon, his legacy piece is also about that, that veterans. You know, we all know in terms in policing, there's nothing more X than X, which, you know, is, is you know, there was some humour attached to it, but, but, it, but it hurt people. And it's about still feeling, feeling included. So I think that we need to continue that work. Graham's done that well in police. I think across other emergency services, we can do, do more about, well, you're always part of the family, not not just when you're wearing the uniform or you're, you're providing one of those critical support roles. That's so important. I think that's something that we certainly see and feel within our Code 9 family because often um, a lot of our members are retired and there is that feeling that they've almost been forgotten. And um, mm. that's something that comes through so often in the discussions that I've been having with them is that, you know, we just wanted to feel like we were still part of that family, that we weren't forgotten. Yeah. And so I think that's such an important thing to reflect on and maybe to yeah to end our um, very informative podcast on. Um, and just one thing I would like to, to put back to you, um, Emergency Management Commissioner Andrew Chris, thank you so much for everything that you have been doing. And we hope that you find a way to keep that bucket well under control so that it doesn't tip over too often for you. But um, thank you so much for your time today. We really do appreciate it. Great. No, thanks, everyone. And, and everyone, take care.